This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. I don't know about you, but I don't like to build things. I don't like to build things. I have a brother-in-law who loves to build stuff. Like on his day off, he just wants to get his hands dirty with something. And I'm like, man, I work hard so that on my day off, like, I don't have to work, you know? I don't know what he's doing. I don't like to build things at all. When I first got married to Angie, I bought a grill. Not at a store, but online because it was a lot cheaper. And so it, I, I didn't anticipate, though, that when I ordered it, it was not going to be pre-built. And so it came in this big box. And I opened this box and I saw all these pieces, an instruction manual that was thicker than my Bible, and I just closed that box and walked away. And that grill remained in our living room for several weeks, unbuilt. I tried to convince Angie that let's just use it as a coffee table, you know, put a little blanket over it, it'll be great, that way we don't have to buy a coffee table, and I don't have to build it. It's a win-win all around. Um, she wasn't buying it, so eventually... <laughs> Eventually, I got around to putting the grill to, uh, together. It took me over four hours, and three of my fingers were bleeding. Fortunately, I kept all of them, but it was a close call there. Last summer, the grill died. So 14 years, actually not a bad, not a bad run, not a bad run. I'm now looking into buying new grills, but I will only buy them pre-built. I will only buy them from stores that will build them and drop them off at my house. I'm not getting into that again at all. I don't like to build things. I think a lot of times, though, we can treat our relationship with God the way I'm treating my new grill. We expect it to come just pre-built. We don't expect to have to put any effort into it. We expect our relationship with God to just work. And so when it becomes hard, we can be taken by surprise it can actually end up struggling with our faith. But what Jude is telling us in these verses, it's, it's if we want to have a relationship with God, we should expect that relationship to take some effort from us. In this passage, Jude gives nine different commands. This is not a let go and let God passage, not, not by any means. No, this is an exhortation that if we want to build lives of faithfulness, if we want to truly, not perfectly, but truly seek to follow Jesus, then we're going to need to put some sweat equity into it as we follow the instructions God has given us for building lives of faithfulness. And in the context of Jude, this exhortation to us is especially important to note because Jude is all about how following Jesus is not always going to be easy. Right? Jude is all about how uh, there, there, there are going to be things that come into our lives, false teachings that arise that want to pressure us to compromise our faith. Jude is about spirituality in the context of adversity. And so as we, re we receive these instructions today about how to live faithfully, we need to know that th this is a call to be faithful in, in a time where there's pressure to be faithless. So I've been this morning's sermon, building faithful lives in faithless times. Building faithful lives in faithless times. I think that in these nine commands in this passage, um, that we can group them really into three categories. 
So here's three categories of how we can build faithful lives and faithful, faithless times. First, we need to remember God's warnings. Remember God's warnings. Second, we need to remain in God's love. We need to remain in God's love. And third, we need to reach out to others with God's mercy. Reach out to others with God's mercy. Let's look at each of these together. First, remember God's warnings. Verse 17 gives a command to remember. And Jude goes on then to describe how it had been predicted that false teachers would come into the church. And so, for example, Jesus warned about this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 11, when he said, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. The apostle Paul warned about this in Acts chapter 20. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own cells will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I could go on and talk about how the Apostle Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 2, 1 and 3, or the Apostle John in 2 John and 1 John. Excuse me, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through 23. That's just a few of those places. Scripture regularly and repeatedly talks about how false teachers are going to try to come into God's church. And here's why Jude is bringing this up in this context. He didn't want the presence of these false teachers to come as a surprise to these Christians. He doesn't want them to think that, oh, somehow God has fallen asleep at the wheel and things have totally gone off course. No, their presence was actually confirmation of Scripture's truth. God had been warning that they would come so that they would not be surprised when these challenges arose. But how often we are taken by surprise when challenges to our faith arise. We can have this expectation that being a Christian is supposed to be easy. And so when people start pushing back against us, we'll eventually just cave in. We'll compromise. We'll either hide our Christianity or we'll take out the parts that are getting us some flack. But either way, we compromise our faith because we've forgotten that following Jesus will always bring pushback with it. There will always be, as verse 18 says, scoffers. People just look at you and scoff at you, look down on you, try to make you feel less than. Say things like, you're so retrograde. That's what primitive people believe. Don't you know we progressed more than that? Don't you know we need to be on the right side of history? You need to get with the times. This is the 21st century, not the 1st century anymore. All these things they look at and just look down on you because you believe that God's word's actually true. They will encourage us, as verse 18 says, to follow ungodly passions. You should just be defined by what you want instead of what God wants for you. You just reshape God into something that fits a little more comfortably into your lifestyle. They, 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 they might not outright say deny God, but where everything in our culture is going that has crept into the church is that we need to re- remake God in our own image. Remember, Jude's not been talking about people out there in the culture. He's been talking about what's taking place within the walls of the church itself. This often comes in phrases like, well, God just wants you to be happy. And anything's justified because your happiness is what really matters. Or 
you know, you're sitting around a Bible study and everyone's just saying like, well, I feel scripture says this, I feel scripture says this, and we're taking up our different takes on what we feel scripture says instead of actually saying, God, what are you saying? What, not, not what do I feel this says, what does this say? But what these false teachers were selling was that, no, you can just kind of reshape God. He's like Plato. Just, just make him into a little figure that's a little more comfortable for you. You know, spoonful of all these things will help God go down. Right? This is what the false teachers were selling. And friends, let's be clear, it's still being sold. And Jude says here, don't listen to this kind of thinking because while it might come packaged as an enlightened view of Christianity, these people are, as verse 19 says, they're devoid of the Spirit. They're devoid of the Spirit. You see, those indwelt by the Holy Spirit will always want to live under the authority of God's Word. How do you know if someone's really filled with the Spirit? It's because their hearts have been changed to want to follow God. The Spirit of God is, gives us a deep love for God and, and changes us from, from those who follow God's Word. It's not a burden anymore. No, it becomes our delight. It's a blessing. The Spirit leads us to want to lay down our lives and surrender and say, God, my happiness is following what you say is holiness. I want to live faithfully for you according to your word. And so I don't want to be led by what Scripture says. No, Lord, I want to be led by what you say is actually true. Right? The Spirit of God says, I'm going to lay down my prejudgments. I'm going to lay down my preconceptions. I'm going to lay down my preferences. And the Spirit of God helps us say, Lord, I'm open to you. Shape me. Mold me, guide me, lead me. In you is life. But Jude's saying these false teachers weren't talking any of that language because they did not have the Spirit of God in them. And so they were not wanting to live in submission to God's Word. And his point is, again, not to empower these Christians to point their fingers at others. His point is, remember these warnings so that this doesn't creep into you. He's saying, remember... Don't be surprised that others are going to make it hard to follow Jesus. Jesus told us it would be hard to follow him. You warn someone ahead of time not to invoke fear, but so that they can be prepared for what's coming. As Jesus warned about false teachers coming, as Jude is reminding them of this warning here, he's not trying to get people to live at like jumping in every shadow. It's like, no, I just, just be prepared. Be prepared that your spirituality is going to be lived in a context of adversity. Be prepared for that. When I go to the shore with my kids, which actually, I don't like the shore, so it's another act of love. I just go down there with my family. But I'm like, who? It's idea. Let's go and, and be in a place where it's like 1,000 degrees, get burnt to a crisp. Oh, but good news, we can have sand on us for the rest of our lives as a result. Like, I just don't get the shore. I don't get it. Give me a lake and a pond and the mountains and a cool breeze and praise the Lord. I'll thank God for his good gift of nature. But, but anyways, teach their own. My kids love the shore. And so we go to the beach. And, and, and one of the things we'll do is we'll build sand castles. Um, but we don't just build a sand castle. You know, if you want to build a sand castle and you want it to last, you need to build a moat around your sand castle. Because at some point, waves are going to come up. And your sandcastle will be swept away if you're not prepared for what's going to try to wash it away. That's why Jude is bringing up this reminder here. We need to be prepared for what's coming so that when waves come against us, we aren't swept away by those things. I 
used to be a pastor where I, 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 in my former church where I dealt a lot with college students and something I saw often in that age group, and I'll be honest, it just broke my heart, is that kids would grow up in this somewhat Christian bubble where it was honestly easy to be a Christian, and then they go away to college, and quite frankly, they weren't prepared to experience scoffing. They, 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 they weren't ready for false teaching. And so waves would hit them, either through people mocking them, or through them just going through a really crazy rabbit trail on YouTube, and either way, their faith would end up being lost. If we want to build faithful lives, we have to realize that our spirituality is lived in the context of adversity and we need to be prepared for that. Friends, your coworkers will scoff you. If they're not doing that, it's probably because they don't know you're a Christian. Maybe they should. Right? Coworkers will scoff you. Teaching that is devoid of the Spirit and wants to lead you astray, that will show up in your YouTube feed. <laughs> Expect it. There will be waves that try to sweep away our faith. So don't be surprised by that. Remember God's warnings and be prepared for adversity. That's part of how we build lives that are faithful. We're, we're prepared for the adversity that's going to come against us. But second, we aren't just prepared by remembering God's wordings. We also are to remain in God's love. We're to remain in God's love. Verses 20 through 21 is this really one whole beautiful sentence in the original Greek. It's this beautiful sentence that has one command in it, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. And that imperative, keep, is surrounded by three participles. Basically, here's three things that you do to keep yourself in the love of God. You build yourself up, which is all one word in the Greek, but you build yourself up, you pray, and you wait. And so Jude is telling us that he wants us to be people who keep ourselves in God's love by building, by praying, by waiting. Before talking about those three things, though, I do want to say, what does it mean to keep ourselves in God's love? What does it mean that we have to do that? Well, what Jude doesn't mean is that we need to do things to make God love us. No, he's already told us in verse 1 that we are what? We are beloved in God the Father. He reminded us again of this identity and we started verse 3. Beloved, he says. He reminded again at the start of our passage this morning, but you must remember, beloved. Right? Again and again and again, Jude has been telling us, you are loved by God. You are loved by God. And as we've been seeing throughout this series, the reason that we can know that we are loved by God is because God has shown us his love in Jesus. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and gave his life as a propitiation for our sins. Friends, our assurance of God's love for us does not come from us looking inwardly and seeing all these wonderful characteristics about ourselves. This is not a practice of self-affirmation. No, we know we're loved by God, not by looking within, but by looking out to what God has done for us in Christ. The reason, friend, you can know today, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, that you are loved by God, the reason that you can know that down to the, the core of your being is because there is an old rugged cross that stands on a hill called Calvary where Jesus suffered and bled and died in your place for your sins. 
we are loved by God. And if today you will believe that, if today you will embrace that, then you can know today that you are loved by God. And God's love will be poured into your heart. And so we do not have to make God love us. He does love us through faith in Jesus. And once we have God's love, we always have it. We are his beloved in Christ. And we will not ever lose God's love because we never earned God's love to begin with. It was given to us by Jesus. And so we always have God's love, but we do need to keep ourselves in God's love. That word keep means to guard. It means to not lose. It means to hold on to. It means to remain in. And so this is not saying that we need to hold on to God so that he loves us. He will always love us. What this is saying is that we need to hold on to believing that God does love us. That's what it means to keep ourselves in the love of God. We're not trying to make God love us. We're trying to guard our hearts with the truth that, yes, God does love us. Because how quickly and easily we can forget that. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, committed the first sin, what happened? God comes looking for them, and where are they? They are, they are hiding. They're hiding in some bushes, which pretty dumb idea to hide in bushes from the one who made the bushes, but, but sin makes you do stupid stuff. And they, 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 they were hiding. Why are they hiding? Adam says, because I heard you coming, and I was naked, and I was afraid. He knew that he was naked before God. That God saw everything. That God saw his sin. And Adam and his sin, he felt shame and he felt fear. The first response to the first experience of sin was to experience distance relationally from God. Was to feel fear. God does not love me anymore. And that instinct, friend, has been handed down to us. When we sin, when we do wrong, we can become afraid that God does not love me anymore. Which is why often one sin will lead to another sin. All is lost. God doesn't love me anymore. So I might as well just keep on sinning. How much of our faithlessness to God is rooted in doubt about God's love for us? And so one of the ways that we remain faithful in faithless times is by holding on to the belief, no, God, you do love me. I'm going to remain in that love. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not believing anything else. I'm going to live for you because I know that you do love me, even when I fall and fail. And so here's how we do that. Here's how we keep on believing that God loves us, even when we're doubting that that could possibly be true. Well, we build ourselves up in our faith, as we're told in verse 20. We pray in the Spirit, as we're told also in verse 20. And we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We build, we pray, we wait. That command to build yourself up in your most holy faith is a connection back to verse 3. When Jude says we need to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And so this is speaking about the noun of faith, not the verb. So not the action of having faith, but the object of what we have faith in. Which is another way of saying the truth of Scripture. What we have faith in, friends, is not the power of our faith. 
No, what we have faith in is the object of our faith, which is God revealed through Holy Scripture, which has at the blazing center of it the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we have faith in, that God's word is true, which means that Jesus and what he has done is true. What we have faith in is what 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 tells us, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Notice the phrase that keeps getting repeated in those verses, in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures. The scriptures are God's truth. And the most important thing God has said in the scriptures, the essential truth of Christianity is what Christ has done for us. He died for our sins. And he rose from the grave to prove that he truly is the Son of God and there is salvation to be found through faith in him. And so how we remain in God's love, friends, it's by studying the words of God that tell us about the love of God in Jesus. One of the ways that we remain in God's love and we believe what God says instead of what our emotions lead us to feel is we go back to what God says again and again and again and again and we're reminded of God's love for us in Jesus revealed through his holy word. Friends, this, this is why when we meet in our community groups every other week, which is, if you're new here, it's just small groups of people that get together and what they do when they get together is we... we Talk about the sermon. Not because my preaching is that great, but because we want God's word to go deep into our hearts. And then the week that we're not meeting in community groups, we meet in men's and women's Bible studies where we dig into different parts of the Bible and equip ourselves about how to read and understand God's word. Why? Not so we can just have those times. Those, those times are sweet. But so then you can go back the next morning and you can be better equipped about how to read the Bible in your own life. Right, friends? Like, like we want to be a Bible-saturated church, where if you come here for any length of time, you learn how to read this word and soak in God's love for you that's expressed through it. Because part of how we remain in God's love is by regularly ingesting and digesting the word of God. That's what builds up our faith. We remain in God's love by taking in God's word and also by, it says, praying in the spirit. Now, praying in the spirit is not some kind of super special prayer. There's prayer and then there's praying in the Spirit. That's like next level prayer. That's not all what Jude's talking about here. No, here Jude is pointing to the nature of what prayer is. In the Old Testament, God's holy presence was in the Holy of Holies inside the temple, the innermost part of the temple. And people would travel from all over the world to go to the temple. Why? To be close to God and to pray. But now, because of the blood of Jesus, we are washed clean, and we ourselves have become what? We've become the holy temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. God's Spirit does not dwell in a temple made by human hands anymore. God's very Spirit dwells in us, and so we don't have to go to a temple in order to be near to God. No, we can pray and experience His Holy Spirit in our spirit. As Romans chapter 8 verse 16 tells us that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so often we can think about prayer in terms of like, well, I'm asking God for these things. And that's not a bad thing to do in prayer. We, we, we can ask God for stuff in prayer. But friends, we need to re reframe our thinking of prayer if that's what we primarily think prayer is about. 
Prayer is not primarily about asking God for stuff. At least it shouldn't be. Prayer is primarily about relating with God. It's primarily about communing with him, enjoying our relationship with him. Think about how Jesus taught us to pray. How do we start? Our Father. It's a relational term. Reminding ourselves of the love we have of God, not a not detached deity, but the intimate love of a father for his children. We pray, our Father, hallowed be your name. It's just enjoying, God, you're great, and I love you. Hallowed be your name is an expression of, of affection that comes from our deepest heart of hearts. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm not asking God for stuff for me. I'm surrendering my will to him because he knows better than me. Right? This is all just enjoying relationship with God. Then it goes on to say, and give us this day our daily bread. It's not that we don't then ask God for our daily needs. My kids ask me for stuff all the time. And I'm fine with that. Like, I want them to believe that I care about what they want. But man, more than just giving them stuff, I want to be with them. I want to experience relationship with them. Friends, God wants to be with us, not just give us stuff. He wants to relate with us. And this is what praying in the Spirit is, is pointing us to. This is about communing with God, enjoying Him, lingering in an awareness of His presence. And this is why reading Scripture and praying so often go together like we see in this verse here. Because God's Word is the primary place that we hear God speak to us, and prayer is the primary way that we then speak back to God. So if I'm reading scripture, here's, here's what you can do. If you want to grow in, in experiencing communion with God through prayer, not just going through your list of things you want, but experiencing a deeper level of, man, I just want to enjoy who God is, here's what you should do. Take scripture and use that scripture to turn it back to prayer to God. Take scripture and use it to turn it back to prayer to God. Let's use a scripture that maybe many of us know. Psalm 23, the Lord is our shepherd. God, thank you that you're my shepherd. Thank you so much that you don't lead me to just go through life blindly, but that you care for me. You want to show me the way. You want to provide for my needs. You care for me tenderly, the way that a shepherd cares for this. And just going through, like, I'm thinking about that verse that I just read that reveals what God is saying to me. He's my shepherd, and I'm just praising him and praying him back. I'm just lingering on that verse. Friends, you could spend an hour in prayer just praising God, the fact that he's your shepherd. Just experiencing the love of God as you experience his word minister to your heart through his, through his spirit. It's how we remain in God's love. We, 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 we take fuel for it from his word and then we linger on it. We commune with God about it through praying in the spirit. We remain in God's love this way and then finally we remain in God's love by waiting for the return of Jesus. Waiting for the return of Jesus. That word wait means to watch out for with eager anticipation. Waiting is not a passive thing. No, it is actively watching out for what God is going to do with eager anticipation. Friends, Jesus came once to die for our sins, but let's be clear, he is coming again. He is coming again to bring full and final victory over all sin and remake this world new. In this world where there are so many trials and tribulations that we can go through, so many ways that falsehoods can abound, when there are just so many hard things that we are consistently 
navigating. Faith can begin to become fatiguing, can it? But this is the blessed promise. What Titus chapter 1 calls the blessed hope. Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to win once and for all. And so stay faithful because our ending in Christ is sure. There's this great scene in The Two Towers, the second book of the Lord of the Rings series. It's been several months since I've mentioned the Lord of the Rings, so you just got to let me scratch this itch a little bit. Um, there's this wonderful scene where the faithful are hunkered down in Helm's Deep, which is this big, big fortress. And the hordes of evil are just beating down on them, just wave after wave after wave. And the strength of the faithful is failing. Discouragement. Fear, doubt is beginning to come in. Are, are we going to make it through the night? But in all these things, their leader, a guy named Aragorn, he just keeps reminding them of the words of Gandalf, the wizard. Gandalf said he's coming back at the morning dawn. Gandalf said he's coming back to bring help. Gandalf said, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And so as they are reminded of Gandalf's coming, they continue to faithfully fight because their eyes are on the hills where they're waiting for their help to come. And eventually the dawn breaks and Gandalf appears with his army just like he said he would and he rides down upon the enemies and wipes them out. Friends, we need to know today our king is coming. Psalm chapter 121, verse 1 through 2. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of the heavens and earth. Friends, there is a day coming when the sky will be split wide open and the king of glory will enter in. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Psalm chapter 24, verses 7 and 8. And as Revelation 19, 11 through 16 tells us, he's going to come as a rider on a white horse. And his name will be faithful and true. And his eyes will be like fiery flames. And on his head will be many crowns. And his crows will be dipped in the blood of his enemies whom he has defeated. And on his thigh will be the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And there will be triumph and glory on the day of his return. Because all of history, friends, is building towards this great climatic moment of the victory of Jesus Christ. And so, wait for his return. Don't lose heart. Don't grow fatigued. Stay faithful. Because our king is coming. We want to build faithful lives in faithless times. Then we need to remember God's warning. We need to remain in God's love. By building our lives in his word. By praying in the spirit. By watching out for his return. And then finally, we need to reach out to others with God's mercy. We need to reach out to others with God's mercy. Jude ends this section by directing these people how to interact with others. Because one of the ways that we experience God's love for us is by allowing God's love to flow through us to the people around us. Let me repeat that because it's very important. One of the ways that we experience God's love for us is by allowing his love to flow through us to the people around us. And there are three categories of people 
that Jude gives in these verses. First, he says in verse 22, have mercy on those that doubt. Notice he doesn't say have mercy on them if they doubt. No, he assumes there will be doubters. He assumes that there will be people who for some reason, faith is just a real struggle. And how we should be postured, how we should be postured towards those who are struggling with doubts is with a posture of mercy. Not with self-righteousness. I thought you knew better than that. Not with condemnation. How could you struggle like that? Not with judgment. What's wrong with you? Not with avoidance. It's just easier not to deal with you. No, we have mercy. We have a compassionate disposition, which doesn't avoid their struggle. No, we press in. Let's talk. Share with me what you're feeling. We express empathy. Man, that must be really hard. I can understand why that'd be hard for you to, to, to feel that way or think about that. We, we express empathy, but then we don't just leave them in that. That's not merciful. No, we try to gently guide them towards the truth. After we've built that relationship of love through compassion, one of the ways we show mercy is, is, is a heart posture, and it's also bringing them to the well of mercy found in God's word. And so we, we, we bring them mercy. Hey, here's what God's word says about that. Let, let's just explore this together. Let's take some time. Let's pray through this together. We have mercy, friends, and those who doubt. Not if they doubt, but when people doubt. We are to have hearts of mercy. Next category says is we are to save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is a reference back to verses 5 through 7, where we saw God's judgment was likened to eternal fire. But there's a way to be saved from those flames. Jesus came and went into the fire so that we don't have to. We can be saved from what our sins deserve by trusting in what Jesus has done for the cross. Friends, God wants to save people from the fires of his judgment and he wants to use us to spread his message of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Friends, God, how God's going to reach people. He could do all kinds of things. He could write he could write things in the stars in heaven if he wanted to. He could speak from heaven if he wanted to. You know what he's done? He sent you. He sent you to your coworkers. He sent you to your family members. He sent you to your neighbors. Because the way that God reaches people is through people. The way that God reaches people is through people. And he wants us to be his ambassadors, to share his message, to tell others about Jesus. And so what this is saying, friends, is we cannot afford to just go through life. We have to live intentionally with our life. Because unlike what people will say, you only have one life, live it all now. The reality is like, no, we have a life that stretches for eternity. And that's what we should care about using this time that we have on earth about. And so we should go through life intentionally asking each and every day, God, who are you sending me to today? Who is God sending you to? Who are the people in your heart? I was recently coming back from a trip where I'd been speaking at this conference, and I preached six times in two days. So I love to preach, but I was, I was pretty beat. 
um, just exhausted. And so I got on my flight. And to my shame, I just prayed, God, I hope the person next to me doesn't want to talk. Because I was out of words. Like, I just wanted hood up, earphones in, zone out. I was just, I was done, done. Cooked like a chicken. And, and I just felt God say back to me, what if the person next to you, what if this is going to be their, their last flight? I felt God just speaking to me, you're not going home. What if I'm sending you to that seat because I made a, an appointment for you with that person? And so I was just convicted afresh of my laziness, my idolatry of comfort. And so even in my weakness, I struck up a conversation, eventually led to me being able to share the gospel. And the person is sitting here today. No, I, I wish. I wish they were sitting here today. That's not the end of the story. Um, that'd be a real, a real zinger. But I, I'll tell it to you to, to, to bring up a zinger because the reality is real life isn't always zingers. And usually it's not. But this is a true story that actually informed how I thought about that moment. About five years ago, I was speaking at another church, and a friend of mine um, came up to me. He was actually my, dad, my friend's dad, so, um, but we've become friends throughout the years. And he came up to me and said, Jeff, I want to introduce you to Keith. That wasn't the guy's name, but I'm hiding his name to, um, so he can share his story. But anyways, he said, I want to I introduce you to Keith, and uh, he came to church today. He just became a Christian. I'm like, oh, that's great. Nice to meet you, Keith. You know, I'm excited about that. Like, always happy when someone's placed their faith in Christ. And, and this man, Keith, who had just become a Christian, said, I want you to know that I'm here partly because 20 years ago, I was sitting next to, and he mentioned my friend's name, on a plane. And he talked with me about Jesus. And I didn't believe any of it. But I went home that night, and I couldn't sleep that well. And I didn't do anything about that. But that started a 20-year journey. All launched by that first conversation. And that 20-year journey culminated in two weeks ago, I gave my life to Christ. Snatched from the fire. Snatched from the fire. Friends, snatching people from the fire, it's a community project. It's a community project. Maybe you are the first conversation, or maybe you'll be the last. It's always most fun when we're the last. But either way, may our ambition be that when we get to heaven, there's just person after person who is there because by the grace of God, we've been part of their story. We have mercy on those who doubt. We save by snatching out of the fire. And finally, we show mercy, it says, with fear, hating even the garments stained by flesh. On the one hand, this is telling us to hate everything having to do with sin. Flesh is often a word that the Bible used to describe ungodly desires. Verse 23 says that we should hate that and we should have fear about that. Sin is a scary thing because it wants to suck out our spiritual life and take away our spiritual vitality. And so we should hate and want to avoid anything having to do with sin. Because sin wants to kill us. Somebody's talking about sin in terms of struggles. Yeah, it's a struggle, friends, but let's remember, it's, it's not a struggle in just like a morally neutral category. No, it's something that's struggling with us that's trying to choke out and take away our life. It's a fight of death. And so we should never tolerate sin. We should seek to run from these things that want to harm us. 
But friends, when we encounter sinners, while we hate sin, we are to show mercy to them. Because let's be honest, we're sinners too. And God has shown mercy to us. And so here's what's true. Here's what has been true and what will always be true at Christ Church. No matter what someone believes, no matter what they've done or are doing, no matter what kind of lifestyle they lead, as a church that gathers in the name of Jesus, as a church that gathers under his banner of mercy, our doors will always be open to anyone with mercy. We will talk honestly about sin. We're not going to sugarcoat anything. We're not going to talk honestly about sin to point our fingers. We're going to talk honestly about sin so that we can link arms. And as sinners ourselves, we can run together to Jesus and experience the sweet, refreshing waters of his mercy that forgives us and washes us and cleanses us and loves us and then invites us to follow him in the way which is right and true and life. And so whether it is someone who is doubting, whether it is someone who needs the gospel, or whether it is someone who is caught up in their sin, Friends, our response is that we are to reach out with the mercy of God. Three different categories, all one response. I think there's a point being made. What people should experience from Christians who receive the mercy of Jesus is mercy. That one of the ambitions for our life should be, of all the characteristics and things people could say about me, that's a person who just, he really showed a lot of mercy. I pray that that be an ambition for your life. Maybe you're someone who's really outgoing. Maybe you're someone who's really type A personality. Maybe you're a type B personality. Whatever it is, in any way that you can be characterized, when our final day comes and people stand up and begin to talk about us at our funerals, may a word that characterizes every follower of Jesus, that kind of just strings as a theme through our lives, is, man, that was a really merciful person. Because part of how God's love flows to us is by it throwing through us to those around us. And so if we want to build faithful lives for God, staying centered in his love, then we need to reach out to people with love. Because the more we pour ourselves out in love, the more God's love pours into us as an ever-flowing stream of living water. And so as we come to a close, friends, I just want to ask this question What's your vision for your life? What, what do you want to count for? When all is said and done, what do you want to count for? Again, we have all different abilities. We have all different opportunities. What God's inviting us all into in this passage is that we have an ambition to be faithful people. That when all is said and done, 50 years from now, when no one remembers your name, and I hate to break it to you, but no one's going to remember you 50 years from now. They won't. But here's how you can make your life count. Here's what will have eternal value. Coming before the throne of heaven and hearing the voice of your creator, the most important being in the entire universe, the only voice 
of the only person who actually matters. And having Jesus look at you and say, in the words of Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Friends, that, that, that's a dream that will capture your heart. That, that, that's an ambition that will stir your soul. <laughs> Living faithfully for Jesus' well done. Living faithfully. Not perfectly, not without sin, not without regrets, but with a sincere and faithful heart. Independence upon the Holy Spirit to live for God's well done. Friends, there's no more meaningful life than the faithful life lived for Jesus. So, Christ Church, be prepared to withstand challenges, remembering God's warning that they will come. Engage in the practices here of building your life on God's word and praying in the spirit and watching out for his return. Engage in the practice of remaining God's love and enjoy what Jesus has done for you. And reach out to others with mercy. The mercy that God has shown you. Christ Church, build a faithful life for the good of your soul and the glory of God's name. Let's pray.